0: Part three of Boule de Suif by Guy de Maupassant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Bob Neufeld. They rose fairly early the next morning, with a vague hope of being allowed to start, a greater desire than ever to do so, and a terror at having to spend another day in this wretched little inn. Alas, the horses remained in the stable. The driver was invisible. They spent their time, for want of something better to do, in wandering round the coach. Luncheon was a gloomy affair, and there was a general coolness towards Boule de Suif, for night, which brings counsel, had somewhat modified the judgment of her companions. In the cold light of the morning, they almost bore a grudge against the girl for not having secretly sought out the Prussian that the rest of the party might receive a joyful surprise when they awoke. What more simple! Besides, who would have been the wiser? She might have saved appearances by telling the officer that she had taken pity on their distress. Such a step would be of so little consequence to her. But no one as yet confessed to such thoughts. In the afternoon, seeing that they were all bored to death the count proposed a walk in the neighbourhood of the village each one wrapped himself up well and the little party set out leaving behind only cornudet who preferred to sit over the fire and the two nuns who were in the habit of spending their day in the church or at the presbytery the cold which grew more intense each day almost froze the noses and ears of the pedestrians Their feet began to pain them, so that each step was a penance, and when they reached the open country it looked so mournful and depressing, in its limitless mantle of white, that they all hastily retraced their steps, with bodies benumbed and hearts heavy. The four women walked in front, and the three men followed a little in the rear. Loiseau, who saw perfectly well how matters stood, asked suddenly if that trollop were going to keep them waiting much longer in this godforsaken spot the count always courteous replied that they could not exact so painful a sacrifice from any woman and that the first move must come from herself monsieur carré-lamadon remarked that if the french as they talked of doing made a counter-attack by way of dieppe Their encounter with the enemy must inevitably take place at Tote's. This reflection made the other two anxious. Supposing we escape on foot, said Loiseau. The Count shrugged his shoulders. How can you think of such a thing in this snow, and with our wives? Besides, we should be pursued at once, overtaken in ten minutes, and brought back as prisoners at the mercy of the soldiery. This was true enough. They were silent. The ladies talked of dress, but a certain constraint seemed to prevail among them. Suddenly, at the end of the street, the officer appeared. His tall, wasp like uniformed figure was outlined against the snow which bounded the horizon, and he walked, knees apart, with that motion peculiar to soldiers who are always anxious not to soil their carefully polished boots. He bowed as he passed the ladies, then glanced scornfully at the men, who had sufficient dignity not to raise their hats, though Loiseau made a movement to do so. Boule de Suif flushed crimson to the ears, and the three married women felt unalterably humiliated at being met thus by the soldier in company with the girl whom he had treated with such scant ceremony. Then they began to talk about him, his figure and his face. Madame Carre-Lamadon, who had known many officers, and judged them as a connoisseur, thought him not at all bad-looking. She even regretted that he was not a Frenchman, because in that case he would have made a very handsome hussar, with whom all the women would assuredly have fallen in love. When they were once more within doors they did not know what to do with themselves. Sharp words even were exchanged, apropos of the merest trifles. The silent dinner was quickly over, and each one went to bed early in the hope of sleeping and thus killing time. They came down next morning with tired faces and irritable tempers. The women scarcely spoke to Boule de Suif. A church-bell summoned the faithful to a baptism. Boule de Suif had a child being brought up by peasants at yves She did not see him once a year, and never thought of him, but the idea of a child who was about to be baptized induced a sudden wave of tenderness for her own, and she insisted on being present at the ceremony. As soon as she had gone out, the rest of the company looked at one another and drew their chairs together, for they realized that they must decide on some course of action. Doiseau had an inspiration. He proposed that they should ask the officer to detain Boule de Suif only, and to let the rest depart on their way. M. Follenvie was entrusted with this commission, but he returned to them almost immediately. The German, who knew human nature, had shown him the door. He intended to keep all the travellers until his condition had been complied with whereupon Madame Loiseau's vulgar temperament broke bounds. "'We are not going to die of old age here,' she cried. "'Since it's that vixen's trade to behave so with men, I don't see that she has any right to refuse one more than another. I may as well tell you she took any lover she could at Rouen, even coachmen. Yes, indeed, Madame, the coachman at the prefecture.' I know it for a fact, for he buys his wine of us. And now that it is a question of getting us out of difficulty, she puts on virtuous airs, the drab. For my part, I think this officer has behaved very well. Why, there are three others of us, and any one of them he would undoubtedly have preferred. But no, he contents himself with a girl who is common property. He respects married women. Just think, he is master here. He had only to say, I wish it, and he might have taken us by force, with the help of his soldiers. The two other women shuddered. The eyes of pretty Madame Carre-Lamadon glistened, and she grew pale, as if the officer were indeed in the act of laying violent hands on her. The men, who had been discussing the subject among themselves, drew near. Loiseau, in a state of furious resentment, was for delivering up that miserable woman, bound hand and foot, into the enemy's power. But the Count, descended from three generations of ambassadors, and endowed moreover with the lineaments of a diplomat, was in favour of more tactful measures. "'We must persuade her,' he said. Then they laid their plans. The women drew together, they lowered their voices, and the discussion became general, each giving his or her opinion. But the conversation was not in the least coarse. The ladies, in particular, were adepts at delicate phrases and charming subtleties of expression to describe the most improper things. A stranger would have understood none of their allusions, so guarded was the language they employed. But seeing that the thin veneer of modesty with which every woman of the world is furnished goes but a very little way below the surface, they began rather to enjoy this unenifying episode, and at bottom were hugely delighted, feeling themselves in their element, furthering the schemes of lawless love with the gusto of a gourmand cook who prepares supper for another. Their gaiety returned of itself. So amusing at last did the whole business seem to them. The Count uttered several rather risky witticisms, but so tactfully were they said that his audience could not help smiling. Wazo, in turn, made some considerably broader jokes, but no one took offence, and the thought expressed with such brutal directness by his wife was uppermost in the minds of all. Since it's the girl's trade, why should she refuse this man more than another? Dainty Madame carre seemed to think, even, that in Boule de Suif's place she would be less inclined to refuse him than another. The blockade was as carefully arranged as if they were investing a fortress. Each agreed on the role which he or she was to play, the arguments to be used, the maneuvers to be executed. They decided on the plan of campaign, the stratagems they were to employ, and the surprise attacks which were to reduce this human citadel, and force it to receive the enemy within its walls. But Cornudet remained apart from the rest, taking no share in the plot. So absorbed was the attention of all, that Boule de Suif's entrance was almost unnoticed. But the Count whispered a gentle hush which made the others look up. She was there. They suddenly stopped talking, and a vague embarrassment prevented them for a few moments from addressing her. But the countess, more practised than the others in the wiles of the drawing-room, asked her, "'Was the baptism interesting?' The girl, still under the stress of emotion, told what she had seen and heard, described the faces, the attitudes of those present, and even the appearance of the church. She concluded with the words, "'It does one good to pray sometimes.' Until lunchtime the ladies contented themselves with being pleasant to her, so as to increase her confidence and make her amenable to their advice. As soon as they took their seats at table, the attack began. First they opened a vague conversation on the subject of self-sacrifice, Ancient examples were quoted, Judith and Holy Fairness, then, irrationally enough, Lucrece and Sextus, Cleopatra, and the hostile generals whom she reduced to abject slavery by a surrender of her charms. Next was recounted an extraordinary story, born of the imagination of these ignorant millionaires, which told how the matrons of Rome seduced Hannibal, his lieutenants, and all his mercenaries at Capua they held up to admiration all those women who from time to time have arrested the victorious progress of conquerors made of their bodies a field of battle a means of ruling a weapon who have vanquished by their heroic caresses hideous and detested beings and sacrificed their chastity to vengeance and devotion all was said with due restraint and regard for propriety the effect heightened now and then by an outburst of forced enthusiasm calculated to excite emulation. A listener would have thought at last that the one role of woman on earth was a perpetual sacrifice of her person, a continual abandonment of herself to the caprices of hostile soldiery. The two nuns seemed to hear nothing and to be lost in thought. Boule de Suif also was silent. During the whole afternoon she was left to her reflections, but instead of calling her madame, as they had done hitherto, her companions addressed her simply as mademoiselle, without exactly knowing why, but as if desirous of making her descend a step in the esteem she had won, and forcing her to realize her degraded position. Just as soup was served, Monsieur Follenvie reappeared, repeating his phrase of the evening before. A Prussian officer sends to ask if Mademoiselle Elizabeth Rousset has changed her mind. Boule de Suif answered briefly, No, monsieur. But at dinner the coalition weakened. Loiseau made three unfortunate remarks. Each was cudgelling his brains for further examples of self sacrifice, and could find none when the countess, possibly without ulterior motive, and moved simply by a vague desire to do homage to religion, began to question the elder of the two nuns on the most striking facts in the lives of the saints. Now it fell out that many of these had committed acts which would be crimes in our eyes, but the church readily pardons such deeds when they are accomplished for the glory of God, or the good of mankind this was a powerful argument and the countess made the most of it then whether by reasons of a tacit understanding a thinly veiled act of complaisance such as those who wear the ecclesiastical habit excel in or whether merely as the result of sheer stupidity a stupidity admirably adapted to further their designs the old nun rendered formidable aid to the conspirator they had thought her timid she proved herself bold, talkative, bigoted. She was not troubled by the ins and outs of casuistry. Her doctrines were as iron bars, her faith knew no doubt, her conscience no scruples. She looked on Abraham's sacrifice as natural enough, for she herself would not have hesitated to kill both father and mother if she had received a divine order to that effect and nothing, in her opinion, could displease our lord, provided the motive were praiseworthy. The countess, putting to good use the consecrated authority of her unexpected ally, led her on to make a lengthy and edifying paraphrase of that axiom enunciated by a certain school of moralists, the end justifies the means. Then, sister, she asked, you think God accepts all methods, and pardons the act when the motive is pure. Undoubtedly, madam, an action reprehensible in itself often derives merit from the thought which inspires it." And in this wise they talked on, fathoming the wishes of God, predicting His judgments, describing Him as interested in matters which assuredly concern Him but little. All was said with the utmost care and discretion. But every word uttered by the holy woman in her nun's garb weakened the indignant resistance of the courtesan. Then the conversation drifted somewhat, and the nun began to talk of the convents of her order, of her superior, of herself, and of her fragile little neighbor, Sister saint nice They had been sent for from Havre to nurse the hundreds of soldiers who were in hospitals, stricken with smallpox. She described these wretched invalids and their malady, and while they themselves were detained on their way by the caprices of the Prussian officer, scores of Frenchmen might be dying whom they would otherwise have saved, for the nursing of soldiers was the old nun's specialty. She had been in the Crimea, in Italy, in Austria, and as she told the story of her campaigns, she revealed herself as one of those holy sisters of the fife and drum who seemed designed by nature to follow camps, to snatch the wounded from amid the strife of battle, and to quell with a word, more effectually than any general, the rough and insubordinate troopers, a masterful woman, her seamed and pitted face itself an image of the devastations of war. No one spoke when she had finished, for fear of spoiling the excellent effect of her words. As soon as the meal was over the travellers retired to their rooms, whence they emerged the following day at a late hour of the morning. Luncheon passed off quietly, the seed sown the preceding evening was being given time to germinate and bring forth fruit. In the afternoon the countess proposed a walk. Then the count, as had been arranged beforehand, took de Suif's arm, and walked with her at some distance behind the rest. He began talking to her in that familiar, paternal, slightly contemptuous tone which men of his class adopt in speaking to women like her, calling her, my dear child, and talking down to her from the height of his exalted social position and stainless reputation. He came straight to the point. So, you prefer to leave us here, exposed like yourself to all the violence which would follow on a repulse of the Prussian troops, rather than consent to surrender yourself, as you have done so many times in your life? The girl did not reply. He tried kindness, argument, sentiment. He still bore himself as count, even while adopting, when desirable, an attitude of gallantry and making pretty. "'nay, even tender, speeches. "'He exalted the service she would render them, "'spoke of their gratitude, "'then suddenly using the familiar thou. "'And you know, my dear, "'he could boast then of having made a conquest "'of a pretty girl such as he won't often find "'in his own country.' "'Boule de Suif did not answer, "'and joined the rest of the party. "'As soon as they returned, she went to her room, and was seen no more. The general anxiety was at its height. What would she do? If she still resisted, how awkward for them all! The dinner-hour struck. They waited for her in vain. At last Monsieur Follenvie entered, announcing that Mademoiselle Rousset was not well, and that they might sit down to table. They all pricked up their ears. The Count drew near the innkeeper, and whispered, "'Is it all right?' "'Yes.' Out of regard for propriety he said nothing to his companions, but merely nodded slightly toward them. A great sigh of relief went up from all breasts. Every face was lighted up with joy. "'By God!' shouted Wazzo. "'I'll stand champagne all round, if there's any to be found in this place.' And great was Madame Loiseau's dismay, when the proprietor came back with four bottles in his hands. They had all suddenly become talkative and merry, a lively joy filled all hearts. The Count seemed to perceive for the first time that Madame Carre-Lamadon was charming. The manufacturer paid compliments to the Countess. The conversation was animated, sprightly, witty, and although many of the jokes were in the worst possible taste, all the company were amused by them, and none offended, indignation being dependent, like other emotions, on surroundings, and the mental atmosphere had gradually become filled with gross imaginings and unclean thoughts. At dessert even the women indulged in discreetly worded allusions their glances were full of meaning they had drunk much the count who even in his moments of relaxation preserved a dignified demeanour hit on a much appreciated comparison of the condition of things with the termination of a winter spent in the icy solitude of the north pole and the joy of shipwrecked mariners who at last perceive a southward track opening out before their eyes Loiseau, fairly in his element, rose to his feet, holding aloft a glass of champagne. "'I drink to our deliverance!' he shouted. All stood up and greeted the toast with acclamation. Even the two good sisters yielded to the solicitations of the ladies, and consented to moisten their lips with the foaming wine, which they had never before tasted. They declared it was like effervescent lemonade but with a pleasanter flavor. "'It is a pity,' said Loiseau, "'that we have no piano. "'We might have had a quadrille.' Cornudet had not spoken a word or made a movement. He seemed plunged in serious thoughts, and now and then tugged furiously at his great beard, as if trying to add still further to its length. At last, toward midnight, when they were about to separate, Loiseau, whose gait was far from steady, suddenly slapped him on the back, saying thickly, "'We are not jolly to-night. Why are you so silent, old man?' Conneday threw back his head, cast one swift and scornful glance over the assemblage, and answered, "'I tell you all, you have done an infamous thing.' He rose, reached for the door, and repeating, "'Infamous!' disappeared a chill fell on all waso himself looked foolish and disconcerted for a moment but soon recovered his aplomb and writhing with laughter exclaimed really you are all too green for anything pressed for an explanation he related the mysteries of the corridor whereat his listeners were largely amused the ladies could hardly contain their delight. The Count and Monsieur carre laughed till they cried. They could scarcely believe their ears. "'What?' "'You are sure?' He wanted. "'I tell you I saw it with my own eyes.' "'And she refused?' "'Because the Prussian was in the next room. "'Surely you are mistaken. "'I swear I am telling you the truth.' The count was choking with laughter. The manufacturer held his sides. Loiseau continued. So you may well imagine he doesn't think this evening's business at all amusing. And all three began to laugh again, choking, coughing, almost ill with merriment. Then they separated. But Madame Loiseau, who was nothing if not spiteful, remarked to her husband, as they were on the way to bed, that... "'That stuck-up little minx of a carré-lamadon "'had laughed on the wrong side of her mouth all the evening. "'You know,' she said, "'when women run after uniforms, "'it's all the same to them "'whether the men who wear them are French or Prussian. "'It's perfectly sickening.' "'The next morning the snow showed dazzling white "'under a clear winter sun. "'The coach, ready at last, waited before the door, while a flock of white pigeons, with pink eyes spotted in the centres with black, puffed out their white feathers and walked sedately between the legs of the six horses, picking at the steaming manure. The driver, wrapped in his sheepskin coat, was smoking a pipe on the box, and all the passengers, radiant with delight at their approaching departure, were putting up provisions for the remainder of the journey. They were waiting only for Boule de Suif. At last she appeared. She seemed rather shamefaced and embarrassed, and advanced with timid step toward her companions, who, with one accord, turned aside as if they had not seen her. The Count, with much dignity, took his wife by the arm and removed her from the unclean contact. The girl stood still, stupefied with astonishment, then, plucking up courage, accosted the manufacturer's wife with a humble good morning madame to which the other replied merely with a slight and insolent nod accompanied by a look of outraged virtue every one suddenly appeared extremely busy and kept as far from boule de suif as if her skirts had been infected with some deadly disease then they hurried to the couch followed by the despised courtesan who arriving last of all silently took the place she had occupied during the first part of the journey the rest seemed neither to see her or to know her all save madame roiseau who glancing contemptuously in her direction remarked half aloud to her husband what a mercy i am not sitting beside that creature the lumbering vehicle started on its way and the journey began afresh At first no one spoke. Boule de Suif dared not even raise her eyes. She felt at once indignant with her neighbors, and humiliated at having yielded to the Prussian into whose arms they had so hypocritically cast her. But the Countess, turning toward Madame Carré-Lamadon, soon broke the painful silence. "'I think you know Madame d'Etrelle.' "'Yes, she is a friend of mine. "'Such a charming woman.' delightful exceptionally talented and an artist to the fingertips, she sings marvellously and draws to perfection the manufacturer was chatting with the count and amid the clatter of the window-panes a word of their conversation was now and then distinguishable shares maturity premium time limit loiseau who had abstracted from the inn the time-worn pack of cards Thick with the grease of five years' contact with half-wiped-off tables, started a game of bezique with his wife. The good sisters, taking up simultaneously the long rosaries hanging from their waists, made the sign of the cross and began to mutter in unison interminable prayers, their lips moving ever more and more swiftly, as if they sought which should outdistance the other in the race of horizons. From time to time they kissed a medal and crossed themselves anew, then resumed their rapid and unintelligible murmur. Canudet sat still, lost in thought. At the end of three hours Loiseau gathered up the cards, and remarked that he was hungry. His wife thereupon produced a parcel, tied with string, from which she extracted a piece of cold veal this she cut into neat thin slices and both began to eat we may as well do the same said the countess the rest agreed and she unpacked the provisions which had been prepared for herself the count and the carre lamadon in one of these oval dishes the lids of which are decorated with an earthenware hair by way of showing that a game pie lies within was a succulent delicacy consisting of the brown flesh of the game, larded with strokes of bacon, and flavoured with other meats, chopped fine. A solid wedge of Gruyere cheese, which had been wrapped in a newspaper, bore the imprint, Items of News, on its rich oily surface. The two good sisters brought to light a hunk of sausage, smelling strongly of garlic, and Connudet, plunging both hands at once into the capacious pockets of his loose overcoat, produced from one four hard-boiled eggs, and from the other a crust of bread. He removed the shells, threw them into the straw beneath his feet, and began to devour the eggs, letting morsels of the bright yellow yolk fall in his mighty beard, where they looked like stars. Boule de Suif, in the haste and confusion of her departure, had not thought of anything and stifling with rage, she watched all these people placidly eating. At first, ill-suppressed, wrath shook her whole person, and she opened her lips to shriek the truth at them, to overwhelm them with a volley of insults. But she could not utter a word, so choked was she with indignation. No one looked at her, no one thought of her. She felt herself swallowed up in the scorn of these virtuous creatures, who had first sacrificed, then rejected her as a thing useless and unclean. Then she remembered her big basket, full of the good things they had so greedily devoured, the two chickens coated in jelly, the pies, the pears, the four bottles of claret, and her fury broke forth like a cord that is overstrained, and she was on the verge of tears. She made terrible efforts at self-control, drew herself up, swallowed the sobs which choked her, but the tears rose nevertheless, shone at the brink of her eyelids, and soon two heavy drops coursed slowly down her cheeks. Others followed more quickly, like water filtering from a rock, and fell one after another on her rounded bosom. She sat upright, with a fixed expression, her face pale and rigid, hoping desperately that no one saw her give way. But the countess noticed that she was weeping, and with a sign drew her husband's attention to the fact. He shrugged his shoulders as if to say, Well, what of it? It's not my fault. Madame Boiseau chuckled triumphantly and murmured, She's weeping for shame. The two nuns had betaken themselves once more for their prayers, first wrapping the remainder of their sausage in paper. Then Cornudet, who was digesting his eggs, stretched his long legs under the opposite seat, threw himself back, folded his arms, smiled like a man who had just thought of a good joke, and began to whistle the Marseillaise. The faces of his neighbors clouded the popular air evidently did not find favour with them they grew nervous and irritable and seemed ready to howl as a dog does at the sound of a barrel-organ conadet saw the discomfort he was creating and whistled the louder sometimes he even hummed the words amour sacré de la patrie conduis sentient nos braves Liberte, liberte, cherieux, combats avec tes défenseurs, combats avec tes défenseurs. The coach progressed more swiftly, the snow being harder now, and all the way to Dieppe, during the long, dreary hours of the journey, first in the gathering dusk, then in the thick darkness, raising his voice above the rumbling of the vehicle, Carnutet continued, with fierce obstinacy, his vengeful and monotonous whistling, forcing his weary and exasperated hearers to follow the song from end to end, to recall every word of every line, as each was repeated over and over again with untiring persistency. And Boule de Suif still wept, and sometimes— a sob she could not restrain was heard in the darkness between two verses of the song end of bourre de suif by guy de maupassant